This is a quick listener side note before we get into the show. It's been a few months since the last episode, but be rest assured we're still here and still recording. As you'll soon hear, we've encountered a few hurdles over the last few months, which have prevented us from getting a show out to you. But on the positive side, you can also now find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts, and we'd still love to hear about your listener fairy experiences. That being said, let's get on with the show. Up the airy mountain, down the rushing glen, we dare not go a-hunting fear of little men. Do other races exist just beyond the boundaries of humankind? Legends of their existence persist across many cultures. So what are these creatures? Beings of myth and magic? Guardians of nature? or malign entities from darkest folklore. Join your guides Dan Baines and Fiona Marr in their quest for the truth. and welcome to the fairy podcast episode number eight i'm dan baines and i'm joined by my co-host fiona Marr. hello everybody hope you're doing well it's been a while since our last show hasn't it fiona absolutely for uh, lots of different reasons yeah there's a lot has happened tell us um, fiona what's been happening at your end it's been a quite a an emotional few weeks it to say has the least. um yes i've um i was coming up to the point where i was actually going to have to cancel my fairy festival which um listeners to previous shows will know is it's a massive event we had twelve thousand people there last year and to upset everybody traders and everything i thought well i've got to in a time of lockdown well near lockdown um just cancel and basically i did not see how we could get a lot of very very excited small children to socially isolate so it seemed the wise decision because God forbid anyone should get ill with COVID or even die as a result of an event. So it was a horrible decision to have to make. I was incredibly stressed and I had a stroke. So um, I'm very, very lucky to be here. I understand 20% of people just don't make it. Um, and in the last six weeks, it's been one of the steepest learning curves of my life. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who does like a challenge, but my goodness, this has been really difficult. So if I sound slightly drunk, I'm not, I am stroke affected. I'm in effect brain damaged. Um, but very, very interesting. We're going on to this later on. I was already practicing, um, intermittent fasting and I was following a keto diet and I actually, the minute the stroke hit, well, uh, a couple of days later, I thought, I wonder if this has contributed. So I ended up doing quite a lot of research and finding out quite the opposite. It had actually protected my brain. And uh, we're going to go on to this whole thing of um, intermittent fasting, aren't we, Dan, later on? We are, yeah, because it's something uh, I practice from time to time. Mm. Um, but when I got that text, when I woke up, I think it was, uh, did you have a stroke on a Saturday? It was, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, yeah it I woke was, up Sunday was, morning. And I had the text saying, I've been in hospital, I've had a stroke. And I was like, 
I just, well, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And I was just like, what? Um, he's, a, he's a good eye. And what was weird was it came on over two days. So um, Friday, um, I was up at 5 a.m. We had the most glorious dawn, really fiery skies. So I went out to take some photographs and I was staggering. And I thought, this is odd. Um, I thought, oh, temporary dizziness or something. I didn't think that my leg had been weakened, but the rest of me was fine. I was lifting my phone to take pictures. Um, I went shopping later on and I was hurling big packs of water bottles into the car and they're really heavy and there was no problem. And the clutch is notoriously heavy on that car. And I was thinking, I can't get my car into gear. The clutch is finally gone. Oh, dear. And then when I parked up, I thought, this is odd. There's a lot more travel in this pedal. And of course, because the car had been difficult, I didn't for one minute think it was my leg being super weak. Do you no. see? So, yeah. and I defy anyone to have just extrapolated from that one thing that it was a stroke. And it was only the next day I woke up, my left hand and arm were completely dead. And again, because there wasn't a link, I thought, oh, I've slept funny. And when the feeling didn't come back, I just thought, oh, well, you know, I've really, really damaged the nerve in my elbow. And uh, it was only later on my the left side of my face fell and my speech was affected. And because it had come on in sort of three distinct, you know, mm, sections, stages, yeah. uh, stages, exactly. I thought then, oh, it is, it's a stroke and I've been having it since Friday. And it was really, really odd. Um, I went into hospital. Um, I was falling over like crazy by the time, you know, Frank came over and called an ambulance. And I fell over twice because I thought, gosh, if I'm going to hospital, I better feed my cats. And trying to feed them, I just sort of, that was it. I polaxed, so I just went over sideways. Um, but once there, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate now of doing doing keto if you've had a stroke there are about eight scientific papers on it a good one from Copenhagen dated 2014 so it's not new knowledge it's six years old but nobody on the ward had heard about this which I thought was really remiss and then um, unfortunately because it seemed there were a lot of people with vascular dementia on that ward um, it just ended up lots of people's People sort of shouting and murmuring and muttering all night, so no sleep for me. No, it sounded like you was in having a hell of a time. I mean, the thing that worried me the most, though, it was weird. I was like, when as soon as I saw you'd had a stroke and you're in hospital, it's not the fact that you'd had a stroke that worried me. It was the fact that you're in hospital during this COVID nineteen thing, and obviously there's a higher chance of contracting it while you're in hospital. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what worried but, me the most. Um, Ah, right. Well, there's, there's another story there. Um, basically, only keep, they were only keeping people in who'd had, you know, if you'd had a TIA, you were sent home, you know, trans ischemic attack, mini stroke. But if you'd had a full-blown one, they kept you in. Um, and I begged to be let go after, after two days, after no, very little sleep. I think I had six hours sleep and uh, no food to speak of. And thank goodness I was used to doing this fasting because <laughs> I think I'd have been really hungry. Yeah. But, you know, I said, look, one day is not going to make any difference. And I had to prove I could make a cup of tea with one hand, um, which I have never concentrated on making a cup of tea so much in all my life. And I had to walk up and down and downstairs you know when I came home the hell began because I collapsed a couple of times uh three times three really 
really bad falls. One took me two hours to get up from. And I, at one point, one point, I thought, I'm going to have to give up and ask for help. And then I thought, well, if I, if I do, that's the end of my independence. So, um, so I decided to fight it. But my voice has got stronger. That's what I was gonna say, your voice your voice has definitely got stronger. Um, I mean I spoke to you the you know, the day after. And you sounded you're perfectly clear. It just sounded like you'd had uh, one or two drinks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, there was a certain a certain slur a certain you know, that sort of thing that Russians have when they sound drunk when they're not. I love I love the Russian language listening to it, but it had that certain um, swagger, which was not intentional. Yeah, you sound um, like a, a Welsh Rabsee Nesbitt. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> not that bad, not that bad. But, um, you know, you, oh, you definitely could tell that there was something not 100%, but uh, since then, you're just, you just sound perfectly normal again now. I don't to me. I want my voice back, please. I really don't to me. But um, the other thing was the week later, a week afterwards, um, I ended up getting atrial fibrillation. And my heart was hammering at 180 beats a minute. And it took 13 hours to calm it down. Again, I was back in hospital. And now I'm actually of the opinion that COVID caused my stroke. Um, I found a note I'd written to somebody in January explaining I wasn't well. Um, and I do remember being ill, but I don't remember saying, which I put at the time, I said, um, this is very odd because every time you think you're over it, it comes roaring back. And I thought that's pretty interesting. And there's a, a very, very strong correlation between strokes and covid so, you know, I, I really think that possibly is the link. Yeah, there is, um, there's been a mention of obviously it causing long-term damage to your internal yes. organs. Obviously, that would be your, yeah. you know, your heart. and. Well, it's uh, been my, my heart, yeah. yes, yeah. So um, it's just very, very odd the way it all happened, you know. But it, now this probably sounds crazy, but even a bit of me was wondering if going to that fairy wrath on Pat Noon's farm had caused it. And it was the revenge of the fairies. You know, I really didn't know. But um, you sort of, you think everything. You do. You, know? you would attribute um, that to like, if you just walked under a ladder down the street, you'd have thought, oh my God, is it bad looks I've walked under a ladder? Um, <laughs> if anything, going to Pat Noon's farm and the fairy wrath may have contributed to your fast recovery if you look at it that way from a more positive okay that's a nice way of looking at it yeah and the fairies were certainly helpful the way they helped me find my um my journal which i lost in ireland um again i think i mentioned that in a previous one but i have been to misquote the alien uh sorry the martian um what does he say? I'm going to science the shit out of this. I've been meta-sciencing the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I've had friends sending crystals. I've had prayers from Baha'i, Muslims, Christians. So many friends have helped, helped me. It's been unbelievable. I'm so grateful. And you certainly find out who your friends are. Um, I needed a, a particular um, um, glove, which you use to sort of almost do like a video game. To get your movement back, I had zero a movement. Nintendo in my power left hand. glove. 
Kind of. It's actually called a, a flint music glove. Okay. And unfortunately, the music is a bit cheesy. I, I am laughing at it, you know, but I think I will soon grow to hate it. And you just hit notes with the music. But um, five friends contributed to that. So they've each had a finger named after them. And they get digital updates on the digits, as it were. Okay. So, um, but I can I can clench. I can stretch. Now, stretching is the hardest because short tissues, um, soft tissues will shorten with misuse, you know, mm. and your, 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 your affected hand doesn't match your right one. You know, you're, you're, you're okay, you're unaffected hand. So that makes it weird. I've been doing mirror work where you uh, mirror your own good. I hate to use the words good and bad, but you mirror your own good hand and it does trick your brain. You're quite aware that it's an illusion, but the illusion is very, very good and it, it has a profound effect on this wonderful word neuroplasticity, yeah. which is, is where you basically rewire the brain. But um, I've been listening to a lady called Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor, and she was um, a neuroanatomist, well, she's still is Harvard-trained, and she had a stroke and stayed conscious throughout her entire stroke. And she says if you're going to have one, a right brain stroke is the best uh, um, because it, it frees the imagination. And uh, she was left side affected and um, she had a, what I can only describe as almost like an acid trip. Okay. Uh, she did not know where her body began and ended because that's something you're not aware on your affected side, you lose your spatial intelligence. So uh, when I first sat in a car, I couldn't figure where first gear was because it seemed awfully far away from where I remembered it being. Okay. You know, it, it's very, very odd. And if you close your eyes and you touch your nose, normally you can do that quite fluently. You'll find you can't after a stroke with your affected side. Mm. But it happened to Jill in the in a way where she literally did not know where her body ended. And she felt as big as the universe. She said, I, I couldn't figure out how this huge consciousness could possibly fit inside a small, finite human body. Wow, so like a DMT looks, trip. Yes, exactly. I mean, yes. Could that so be she, something to do with the effects of the stroke on the brain and the fact that the brain does actually contain a certain amount of DMT? Could it have interfered I, with I that? I don't think she... No, 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 because I think it was so long-lasting. It wasn't... She doesn't really describe it in the ayahuasca terms, which is the DMT thing. Yeah. She very much describes it in an acid-type term, which is a kind of a gentler um, trip, if you like, best way to explain it. Um, she explains it that it lasted for a long time and she was a, a kind of a large curious intelligence okay. who understood the absolute connectedness of everything, which is very much more acid. And she said, you know, we're only one, is it something like one tenth of a hundred percent different from each other? And she said, and I just look with sadness at, at this conglomeration of, of beings who were sort of at war yeah. over such a tiny percentage of themselves, which I thought was really, really interesting. So this lady who is a hard-nosed scientist is now speaking like a philosopher. Um, there's lots and lots of videos of her on YouTube. There's a big, long discussion with her and Oprah Winfrey. And I just find it fascinating. I really do. So as I say, unfortunately, I didn't quite get all those insights. <laughs> Like, you know. No, but it's almost like you've been. It is like a way of almost the brain reprogramming itself. If it, it yes, yeah. If it hits a a roadblock, then it tends to build a road around it. And 
include other parts of the brain that it may not have used well, before? Well, I'm, I'm looking at my hand now and, and it's remarkable because I was given, because of COVID, um, I don't have visits by physios or anything like that. So I very much had to get on with it myself. And uh, I was given a list of things to do, one of which is place your hand flat on a table, you know, with a, a napkin beneath it and you scrumple up the napkin. Well, I looked at this and I thought, I can't do that. I really couldn't. I had absolutely no strength at all. And it took the, mo- the utmost effort of will to touch my thumb to my forefinger, which I can do very fluently now in just six weeks. It's quite remarkable. Um, and everything they gave me, I just couldn't do, you know. And I thought, well, where do you start with this? And and all I all I could do was literally manipulate my affected hand with the unaffected hand, but like six hundred, seven hundred repetitions a time. And I think that that has really helped. But I had no real knowledge if I was doing the right thing or not, you know. And I've pushed myself at a time when people are saying, oh, you must rest, you must rest. And I've done the opposite. So I don't know if that's helped as well. It doesn't always pay to listen to what everyone else wants you to do. I know. know. I've always done quite the opposite, to be honest. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And um, like I say, I haven't got fine movement, but it's like every two days I'll get a new thing I can do. So when I first sat in the car, because someone said creative visualization is good, my hand would sweep off the gear stick because I hadn't the strength to pull it back. So I'd sit there. I mean, obviously it wasn't going, it was just parked on the yard. And I was just thinking, right, I'd have to do this and couldn't do the handbrake, couldn't do the seatbelt. Within a very, very short time, just because I so wanted to, that came back. Yeah. And I don't know if that was a mix of sheer bloody mindedness and willpower or the creative visualization of sitting there, you know, and, and seeing it. But then when I did get driving, I couldn't reach and turn the radio on because my hand would hover and circle the, the, the button without being able to press it. And when I did, there was no strength there. Well, now I can turn the radio on. Then the next thing was, can I twiddle the, the volume knob, you know, and slowly that's come back, you know. Uh, yesterday I wore earrings for the first time. I won't have um, magnetic closures put on necklaces because I don't want to give in to it. I don't want any modifications, you know. Um, I was using a walking stick. After those falls, I thought, I'm going to need a stick. And I used that possibly for a week and then thought, right, nope, because it throws your posture out and that's going to make further problems down the line. So it's just being bloody minded that's done it. But it's been very interesting headspace. Yeah, Um, definitely. I mean, you've had a chance to experiment with a lot of things that you normally never would have. And one of the things that we uh, spoke about was obviously your diet and um, mm. fasting and intermittent fasting. Because so you brought it up and we were talking about the subject of autophagy. Yeah. And I'd actually done it before. And it actually yep. triggered me to actually do it again last, you know, a few weeks ago. And yeah. in a weird way, I kind of found a segue between your stroke and fairy folklore. <laughs> including. <laughs> uh, so you actually, as part of your treatment, you decided to t- undertake pretty much intermittent fasting which is obviously restricting what you eat um over a certain amount of time yeah but i was doing this for 28 days before the stroke hit so i think that's why it hit lightly even though it was a full stroke because and your defenses were already in place yeah, yeah yes absolutely um so what happens basically 
if you fast intermittently, um, your body goes into a state called autophagy. And in that state, you see, if, if you're normally sort of you have a breakfast and a lunch, your body is just digesting food all day. So it can't actually do housekeeping. Yeah, it's just working it's, constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The housekeeping is where it mends damaged cells as far as it can. And it spells dead ones. It does. Autophagy actually means to eat, eat itself. Yeah, eat. Yeah, so the, the cells are actually recycling themselves. Yeah. It's going through picking out the bad ones or the ones that are defective or dead and actually cleaning them out of your body. Which in And it, it does make you think, is this why there are so many cancers now? Because we're all so well fed and so frequently fed. Well, is it the, I don't think the human, yeah, I don't think the human body is really designed to, no. I mean, the, the old dietary thing used to be little and often, you know, people would say, yeah. oh, you know, in order to lose weight and to keep your metabolism going, what you need to do, you need to eat little meals as often as possible, which is pretty much like running a car constantly yeah. you know yeah. the, the machine parts are moving around constantly it doesn't yeah. get any rest it's just constantly on the move and i think that's what's been drummed into people over the last maybe three or yeah, four decades and three, three square meals you know yeah. and um i mean it's it sort of it, it's sad but i think we know very very little about nutrition I think that's the truth. I think the five a day is, well, most dentists throw their hands up in horror mm. at the idea that people are eating so much fruit now because they're just big sugar bombs. Yes. We weren't designed to eat these big sugar bombs of fruit. And yes, you might say it's better for you than candy, but to me, it's better to do without all of them, really. That's it. You know? I mean, the, con the connection I was going to mention about, obviously, towards um fairy folklore it's more to do with religion as well is that most religions yeah. incorporate some form of intermittent fasting as part of their annual yeah. tradition so you have um catholicism you know 40 days 40 nights that's the most obvious one and the, well, the Lent, muslim one Lent is what you give up yeah yes. the muslim one that, that's quite famous there's a jewish one as well again yeah. i'm not sure what that's called but all of them in their own way have a, a version of fasting and um, it is supposed to bring on this um, feeling of religious ecstasy, if you, you know, like. Spiritual call connection. It a famine high. Yeah, yeah. And um, one thing I noticed is I did it two weeks ago, actually. I did a um, just over a 48-hour fast. I was pushing yeah. for 72 hours. But I know that the maximum effect of autophagy kicks in at Bathraft after about 16 hours doesn't it and then it kind yeah. of it tends to tail off after that but i just thought i'd keep it going purely yeah to experience it and i noticed straight away um after 24 hours i had a heightened um mental clarity um I, yeah. it was very easy for me to formulate what i wanted to do in the day it's, you know yeah i didn't have this fog that i tend to have around me say if i've just eaten toast for breakfast or something my brain tends to be in a fog bank and i had this clarity and i had this this weird motivation which didn't seem i didn't seem to have to push myself in order to do things i just did things naturally as if it was part yeah. and parcel of my normal day i think most of that was to do with avoiding food because i think well, if i stay out of the kitchen and actually stay in the studio i actually got yeah. more done um, but i did have a i was happier i felt more connected with everything around me and it just it it was just great i actually it was it felt wonderful and it's just knowing that in order to access that state of mind, all you've got to do is not eat for a day. 
and then you yeah. can all, you can access that level of it's almost like going uh, going up a level and also you've got the benefit as well of your body sort of fixing itself and sorting itself out at the same time it seems to be a no-brainer well the great thing for me is autophagy can if you you count your sleep period as part of that 16 hours yes right so you count that and if you have one meal in the evening that means you're in autophagy all day every day you which are, is yeah. just great if you're a lazy you know? bastard like me, it's, uh, clarity. I can try and spend more time in bed. <laughs> I could do 24 hours in bed, to be honest, but there you go. <laughs> given the there opportunity. The mental clarity, though, I think comes from not eating um, carbs. I really do. And I think that um, what happens, well, you're switching brain fuel. I don't know if you know about this. Um, most diets mean that that you, you create a, a thing called glycogen, which is stored in your liver, which is a very, very easily accessible um, body fuel, really. It runs absolutely everything. And your brain is happy to run on glycogen. There's no problem. However, if you're one of these people who does feel like you have a foggy brain or that blanket on the brain feeling, mm. then if you if you lower your carbohydrate intake, then your body is forced into um, a situation where it burns fat. And then it runs off ketone bodies, which is the better brain fuel. Yeah. So particularly if you're doing exams or you've got anything particularly mentally stressful coming up, that's the way to do it, you know. Yeah. And that process almost also stimulates the more primitive brain as well. If you're depriving the body of food and calories, the brain yeah. automatically switches into creative mode. Um, yes. Back, you know, thousands of years ago, you'd have been, well... I need to think, I need to, need to be creative in order to find food, to find a source of food. Yeah, so your brain slips into a higher gear. Yeah, yeah, because um, this is really well researched now because um, not so long ago I was, I was watching a documentary about this and um, one of the doctors talking about it said, you know, it's no good to go flaky and tired and... Um, a bit miserable if you if you've got to be motivated to find your next meal mm. so it's actually part of the body's defense to slip into this higher mental mode and yeah. think right you know and you become a really clever problem solver as well which is really nice to know uh, memory is enhanced as well um, which is great because if there was a particular food source that you uh, access some time ago go you'll find that you can find it again you know so it all helps it does but um the whole thing about this and seeing fairies dan we were going to talk about that yeah the so fairy connection do lead on. it kind of struck me that obviously the the modern diet and obviously the eating regularly does tend to obviously has a, an adverse effect on your body and your brain so we talk about walking around in a fog bank all the time and losing mm. not only our spiritual connection with everything around us but just just connection with people um, as a whole you know it can be it's like a it is it's just like wrapping yourself in a big thick blanket and you're kind of mm -hmm. shielding your way from this if you go back maybe two three hundred years to a period of time actually not even that far you could go back to as far as the 20s really where people just ate less purely because obviously food was more expensive it wasn't as readily available it is now so you would have breakfast but then you might not have anything till your evening meal so you have this period where you are in effect fasting which is going to then give you a more a spiritual connection and be more switched on with your whole environment now if you're living, um, if we go back to say, 
let's go back to say the 1600s where you would live living in a more sort of rural environment and you are you know using this diet are you only eating twice a day and what you're eating isn't very much because you haven't got your brain fogged up with everything we've got nowadays would that make you more receptive to forces of nature essentially would you know would it make you more receptive to seeing fairies or things we associate with fairy folklore those types of experiences purely because your your brain is on a heightened level brought on by the fact you're not eating much yeah i think it's part of the jigsaw i think together with that you've got the the, the fact that people um lived by this extreme sort of, well, superstition, really. Um, the 16th century sort of worldview was very much underpinned by superstition. So you've got people who are already primed, if you like, to see fairies, demons or whatever. Yeah. And together with that, you've then got the physical aspect that their brain is basically sort of more open to it. So I think I definitely think that's part of the jigsaw puzzle. There's more to it than that, obviously, but I think it's a very good point and one certainly to consider. Mm, I'm thinking when I do my next 48-hour, I want to do a 72-hour fast next, I will go for a long walk um, in yeah. a few of the areas to, around here just to see that's how I, was I feel. Say, yeah. yeah. Pick, pick the places or even if you can do a retreat, which is why a lot of religious people do retreats, you know, and you have, even to this day, place of pilgrimage, maybe it would be a good idea to go to a fairy hot spot. Yeah, remove yourself you from the equation and, uh, yeah, and yeah. S- see what happens. I mean, I'm not expecting to obviously have a, a massive fairy experience, but just to feel more connected with my surroundings than I would yeah. normally after just polishing off a, you know, a triple egg and bacon sandwich, a bag of crisps <laughs> and, uh, you know, a sausage roll on top of that. <laughs> It's just it is one of those weird things, and just the the ease of access to access that next level of feeling great and mm. the mental clarity is just as simple as just not eating. You know, you're not doing, yeah. you're not you're not damaging yourself. You're not going to die because no. you've not eaten for forty eight hours. But the I think you'll feel the benefit of, as I say, just the mental and spiritual yeah. clarity the, on top of that. The only the only people I've found who've been resistant are people who are on medications that rely on them being taken after food, um, you know, particularly if it's more than one sort of tablet a day kind of thing. But apart from that, everybody I've spoken to is up to try it, you know, and I just think it, it's an absolutely... I just think it's a brilliant thing in general, I'll be honest with yeah. you, you know. If, you, if you're tight arse um, bastard like me as well, it saves <laughs> on actually buying food. So if you only eat once every three days, it's like, wow, you know, your fridge is constantly full. Obviously, everything absolutely. goes out of date, though, because you're not eating it. But uh, <laughs> but, but if you're not tight like me, uh, what you find is that what you do have is much better quality. Yes. You know, because you're eating a lot less, so it's nicer stuff, you know, generally organic. But um, I'm I'm finding it's sort of it's feeling strangely natural now. So I'm kind of envious of people like you who are occasional visitors, you know, who will go, wow, wow, this is great. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's how I feel most of the time. You're in that state all the time. Yeah. It's difficult for me, though, because I've got because I've got young children who like eat constantly is, you know, I have to prepare food for them. And when I'm pre- it's very difficult to be in a a fasted state when you're 
doing packed lunches for kids yeah. and you know because you just it's so tempting I can imagine. but the guilt you feel when you actually <laughs> break it you know you get to sort of say 20 hours and you're like you know what sod it i'm gonna eat that twix and then bam oh, no. but that contributes to such a downer as well so you've been you've been sort of elevating yourself up and up and up and up yeah. and then you you hit the the temptation level and that temptation it can knock you down so badly and i think knowing the knowing how badly it can knock you back is also a kind of it's also a an encouragement to carry on because you just know how bad you're going to feel yeah. after getting that far it's almost like getting up halfway up everest and thinking and giving up you know what bollocks to it i'm going back it's too cold you know it's that I, feeling yeah I am kind of wondering, though, you know, we're getting way off ferries here. We're going to have to get back to ferries. But we are talking it's about... It's a stroke and saying, fasting special here on the yeah, uh, on the ferry podcast. Of course. <laughs> uh, you were saying about sort of having a Twix. I think it's the fact that it's a sudden lump of sugar mm. like that. I think that will have, have crashed your mood anyway. Yes. You know, you will have had a, a slight yum at the time, but then you will definitely have had some kind of a crash but I felt this good when I gave up coffee and it's a shame that I don't remember it now but I remember how hard it was to give it up yeah coffee and tea and basically caffeine in general and I'm getting on for five years clear of caffeine now Mm. and um I think the foggy brain bit definitely was part of that as well you know but um just sounding a bit virtuous here so come on enough about fasting enough about uh, strokes let's get on to the real subject of fairies shall we dan yes let's what we'll do is we'll take a short break though and we'll be back in a moment so what is that and they they told me that's the fairy we've talked uh, to various people about you know john and revelation describing locusts that uh, have wings and I I have pictures of creatures that look exactly like that and if you look back to John's time during Revelation with his limited use of language it's very uncanny that that's to me what he's describing and these creatures are here now you're listening to the fairy podcast Hi, and welcome back to the Fairy Podcast. Hello, yes, and welcome back. Um, Before we get into the next section of the show, I'd like to mention a podcast that I was in um, about two weeks ago, which some of the listeners who listen to the Fairy Podcast may find quite interesting. And that was I was on a, a show called Big Cat Conversations with Rick Minter. Have you ever heard of this show, Fiona? Um, I have, but only since you mentioned it, and it's really interesting. It's about all the the these alleged big cats the beasts of bodmin um who are roaming the country to this day and every so often some startled motorist down a dark road or in your case on foot which is desperately scary will have an encounter with one of these huge beasts yes uh so i rang in because i started listening to the show um a few months ago and i thought well, I actually had a big cat encounter when I was in the in the Navy in basic training, and it was actually a very close encounter. And I think I could have been one of the first um, people in the UK to have ever been attacked had I not turned around fast enough. <laughs> uh, but, I mean... If, I won't go into the story because it is quite long and it's I, I'll tell it in full detail on Rick's show. But if you go on um, to iTunes and look for Big Cat Conversations with Rick Minter 
and you'll see the shows on there and there's so many great stories about people who've had close encounters not just in the uk but in other countries as well where um, big cats really aren't part of the 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 natural um, environment so it's a really great show and uh, that kind of leads us on to another aspect um, of the fairy podcast which next show i think we're going to have an interview with a chap called paul mcdonald who was on big cat conversations a few shows before me and he's based up in edinburgh but um not only has he had a big cat um, encounter like me but he's also had a few fairy encounters up in the highlands of scotland so we're going to get him on the show and he's going to tell us all about them also of course it's part of fairy folklore that fairies don't like cats so it's interesting. You wonder if, if all these beasts roaming around, um, which I think is part possibly down to the Dangerous Animal Act. I think it was, was released sometime in the 70s. It was, And yeah. quite a lot of people let their exotic cats go rather than um, have them put down. And these creatures seem to be, be breeding quite happily in areas where there's a lot of heather, which also seems to be areas where you get fairies. So there could well be some kind of a, a, um, a war going on there that we don't know about. Um, there's definitely, well, I definitely don't like cats. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> well, and I'm... you see, I, I do. And I used to take one Magnus Magnificat for walks with me. And we went to a place called the Pinnacles in Capel Kerrig, which is a beautiful walk. Bit of a scramble up a hill, you know, the, the, it's quite a distance. And in one particular steep-sided valley, um, it almost felt as if we shouldn't be there. Well, he certainly shouldn't be there, and he was unwelcome. And the first thing he did was he set up um, almost like like a, a, a dog sets up a prey, um, an adder under a bush. So I grabbed him, stuffed him in my rucksack, and it felt like we were being watched all the way through the valley. And whoever or whatever was there was incredibly um, upset at a cat being there. It was the weirdest feeling. And it persisted all, all the way till I got out of the end. It's almost like a box canyon, this thing. And I scrambled out of the other end. And uh, the whole feeling changed. It was really, really weird. But there you go. So so that's one to listen to. Big cats. Big cat conversations. Brilliant. Yeah. So the, the big cat that saw me definitely, definitely didn't like me being there. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, for the listeners who are curious and like to go and listen to that story, then just as a big cat conversations, very interesting show, and I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll love it. So, as if you remember from the last show, we were going to talk about things that appear in the news to do with fairy news. So, I have a bulletin that comes in every day, and one thing that I actually sent through to Fiona while she was in hospital was something that cropped up in the news about the dancing ghost of Saxmundham, which was in. Um, an article called Weird Suffolk, which was in the East Anglian Daily Times. Mm-hmm. And um, it actually talks about ghosts uh, that were seen dancing in a circle. And I think if you remember listening to the last show when we had John Walker, I talked about the similarities of how no matter where fairies are seen, be it in, um, you know, in Canada or Newfoundland or in the UK, they always seem to be dancing in circles. And what is the yeah. symbology of of a circle? What makes dancing in a circle such a magical um, ritual? I mean, we have May Day dancers which dance in circles, and obviously these ghosts were seen dancing in a circle. Now, when I read the article, 
I I put it down to fairy folklore straight away and not ghosts. Yeah, me too. Um, they were called ghosts because they had these diaphanous sort of white floaty clothes around them. And um, it was witnessed by two boys. It was recounted in this this man's later life. We're not given his age or actually when the sighting happened. Um, but, you know, he likened these, these white cloths to shrouds. And that's why they were thinking they were ghosts. And they did seem to vanish like mist in yes. front of these boys' eyes. So, you know, I think that's why they just, for whatever reason, thought ghosts rather than fairies. But um, there's the, um, the the beings of Bodvari, that famous story that, again, I quote in The Last Changeling, where you've got um, little figures dancing in a circle that were observed by a group of children. Um, the circle, obviously, because of the Araboros, this idea of eternity that's why we have them as wedding rings yeah um and it seems to be a way of um raising power um very much it's to do with energy exchange so perhaps dancing in a circle enables the these beings to actually manifest themselves so that could be part of it what they're almost doing. like a, a circle in a seance you know where you all yes, join hands in order to channel much. spirits yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. their exact words were them. Um, each was dressed in white, luminous muslin garment, which covered the wearer, wearer from head to foot. So, almost like they were yeah. completely encased in like a a glowing yeah. web-like. I mean, type that, of clothing. You, you look at Victorian fairy painting; they're always put in diaphanous, you know, clothes like that. Yeah. I know a lot of it is Victorian soft porn. Let's be honest, but. <laughs> You know, the idea of these floaty sort of glowing clothes is is far more fairy-like than the gnome-like um, beings of Bodfari who are in spotted red and yellow costumes. And you couldn't really tell the difference between the males and females. And they had no. sort of little handkerchiefs they were wearing, uh, waving. So they were almost like garden gnomes by the sounds of it, you know, compared yeah. to these beautiful beings. Well, the, the, what these beings were wearing obviously reminded me of my encounter I had when I was very young. They were, yeah. in a, they were in a luminous kind of, well, it was white, very bright garments um, from head to foot. And, um, yeah. They were almost like shrouded. The fact that the hair was the same colour of their clothing from a distance may have looked like they were just draped in a sheet, essentially. Yeah, but um, obviously I was close up, so I could see that it was hair and a kind of white, it's hard to describe, like a gown, uh, like a white Nordics. gown. Nordics, they're, they're like, yeah, they're like um, the aliens that people call Nordics. Because yes. they have the white blonde hair. And, yes. Exactly. Um, but I, I think had you been a religious person, you might have thought they were angels. Yeah, but yeah, you, you weren't raised religious. Do you see what no. I mean? So, or American, so if, I would have said they're aliens, uh, which I say <laughs> yeah. quite often because it is true. You know, they look remarkably like grey, grey aliens, but I would say more friendly and less less inclined to want to interfere with my uh, my rectum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a relief. There you go. It was a relief. But, <laughs> But, I mean, um, you have this idea that they, um, there was, um, I'm just trying to think now, there was a letter from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or sent to him by a lady in Scotland who spoke about fairies dancing in her garden. 
and there was an outer ring going one way and an inner ring going the other way. Yes. And she saw these creatures quite clearly. And these were diminutive fairies, you know. And then you've got the idea of fairy rings, which is supposedly where they have danced. Um, and the rather lovely word for them is galley traps. So these are these circles of mushrooms you see. But quite often, all they are are a richer sort of green sitting out from other greens in a, in a piece of grass. And um, all it is is basically you've started the central fungus, which has died, and beneath the ground it's spread out. So when it comes again, the centre dead, it makes a small circle. So over the years, as the centre dies and next year's growth comes up, the the circle widens until you've got something, you know, many feet across. And in some fields, it manifests as an actual circle of mushrooms and others. It's just because this soil is enriched by this mycelium that's breaking down, you know, bits of wood and all sorts of stuff and nourishing the soil. So you'll get sort of a lovely ring of clover or just richer green grass. And um, so, again, these are fairy rings, you know. Yeah, I think there's definitely a connection. There is something magical, obviously, about the the symbology of a circle and dancing in yes. a circle. It always makes me think about the stone circles, obviously, of the UK. I mean, there are there are stone circles all over Europe as well. But I believe there's mm. about the 1,303 stone circles in the UK. There's loads on Anglesey. Absolutely, I think that is the densest place Anglesey for for them. Um, but you know, I had acupuncture, I was saying this earlier, I had acupuncture on Friday on my affected hand and arm. And um, the chap I was speaking to, um, we were talking about fairies, we were talking about everything. And he saw stone circles as almost like acupuncture points on the earth, which I think is really interesting because, mm. of course, a lot of them are based on ley lines. You know, so there's all this idea of an energy grid, you know, um, all over the planet um, and and it's how you plug into it and use it. You've got the idea that there's you know there are basic um, agricultural calendars, but think about it. You know, I think if you're going to have an agricultural calendar, why would you have one sort of in the middle of nowhere? I'm thinking particularly of Stonehenge. I'm thinking Avebury. Yeah. Okay, Avebury's got the village inside it, but surely every community would need its own farming calendar. But instead, we've got these huge, almost like national monuments that have taken many, many more people than just a few locals to put together. Exactly. And they all vary in design as well. They all yeah. have certain amounts of rings on them. I mean, I've always thought from a, a more fantastical point of view that could they denote entrances to other dimensions on the landscape or Mm. You know, say if someone experienced something at a particular place or some saw something emerge from yeah. a particular place. I mean, a few shows back, we spoke about the girl at Castle Ring in um, Canuck Chase when she fell asleep on the banks of mm. what is uh, or what was a, uh, a Neolithic circle there. And she woke up to see uh, a group of what looked like... Um, prehistoric men wrestling with almost like a gargoyle type creature in the middle mm. of the ring what if these stones actually mark out on the landscape where entrances to 
what, what could, you could only describe as, say, the underworld, really, would be. Well, it, this is something that the rather wonderful Nigel Neal explored in one of his Quatermass um, books, you know. It, it's, it's a fabulous idea and, and quite, you know, quite possible. It's all down to observation. You know, a, a lot of these places were set up sort of after sort of possibly centuries of observation it's almost like the stones as well some i mean all these some of these rings don't have stones but the majority of them do it's almost if the stones are there to perform a a type of maybe a protection or a cap so to maybe prevent something from coming through um or sometimes you find the stones have been knocked down as well uh is there could there be a connection between the way the stones are positioned to what the ring actually achieves. I mean, I know there's the whole alignment of the sun and the passing of the seasons. There's that um, that theory, but what if the stones are there to actually protect or to prevent whatever is inside from getting out? I hadn't thought of it like that. That's quite an interesting idea. But um, I know that that Stonehenge. The more work they do, the more they find. So they now think there was a Woodhenge that predated it and they've got all the post holes okay um but how would you explain places like karnak in france where they're long uh, passages of stone they're just rows mm. do you see what i mean it's not a circle but it's a fabulous site really really ancient and well worth a visit and it's got that kind of electricity in the air feeling. I mean, that that is something that you find in these places. There is, um, I mean, my 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 favourite, one of my favourites is Castle Rig up um, in the Lake District. And I've had some literally magical experiences there. Uh, one of which was um, I was attending... Let's say it was it was a kind of retreat um, about metaphysics, which is the nature of reality. And I was particularly annoyed. Long story I won't go into, but I thought I've got to get away from this group of very entitled people who were there. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get anything out of this weekend unless I can break this mood. And one of the ways of breaking a pattern is to walk very quickly around the stone circle three times. So it just so happens eight miles up the road, there's a stone circle. So I went to Castle Rig and I got there in the teeth of a howling gale and it was overcrowded with loads of people. Um, oh, no, oh, I just didn't want to be seen. So I'm walking and because we've been talking about the nature of reality, you literally walk your talk. I don't want to be seen. So I'm, I am chanting, don't see me in my head while I'm walking. I started off sauntering around the circle. I thought, this is no good. I'm just getting more annoyed. So I was stomping around this circle and I made two and a bit circuits thinking, just don't see me. Don't talk to me. Just leave me alone. Don't see me. Don't see me. Before somebody called out, excuse me. And I'm like, oh shit. And I tried walking on. He goes, excuse me. I can hear you. And for the first time I looked at these people, really looked them properly and they were all blind. And I've been walking around going, don't see me. It was just, and that jaw drop moment, that broke my pattern. Yeah, and yeah. I, he then asked, asked me to describe the um, the whole site. And I started and he said, oh, I've never seen colour. So I then had to describe the entire 360 degree panorama right. in terms of taste. So um, 
uh, a nearby hillside with tufty grass was his number two buzz cut and it was um, lime flavour and then a distant hill with a forestry plantation uh, trees that were lining up you know these fir trees in lines they were dark dark green that was the texture of the corduroy of his trousers and the taste was um, mint chocolate because distance blues colour it, it blues it down so I did the entire I think Keswick was cola cubes, any stones were cola cubes, and all the bracken was crunchy cornflakes. So <laughs> I just did the whole three six. And, you know, I had a bull doing it, and he just turned and said, oh, you're a writer. And at that, that time I wasn't. And he said, well, you should be. And that was my little miracle at those stones, you know. Yeah. Um, and it is an amazing site. It's on a plateau. It's, it's still got massive fells around it, but it is quite elevated from the rest of, of the countryside. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. Yeah. Um, but from that, you've got the little old roll rights in Oxfordshire that are terribly weathered and pocked and they're tiny. And it's a lovely little jumble of stones. It's a circle um, in a field in Oxfordshire, mm. you know, and, and I, I met the lady who actually, she privately owned them at one time. She, she asked if I wanted to buy them because she said I was the person perfect person to own the roll rights you know right. i didn't have the money at the time which is a great shame but there you go have you ever been to um have you been to arbelow in derbyshire no i don't know that one i think it's um it's one of the it's one of the biggest um megalithic sites um right and it's several rings with banks yeah it's very large and dates back to about 2500 bc and right. it has 50 limestone megaliths all around it and it's on top well, it's on. It's high up because it's obviously in the Peak District, so it's up near Buxton. But if you go up there, there's never anyone up there. It's um, it's very very wow. quiet, and but it, it is one of the. It's quite an eerie place as well. Yeah, th- there is that air of eeriness. It's like Kalanish on Sky. It's got that almost sense of desolation. Yeah, it is. It is very desolate. I mean, if you go up there at the right time of the year, all you can hear is the wind, and you can see for miles around you can see the horizon everywhere around you and um, it's the thing is the focus of a lot of pagan ceremonies but it's also the axis of a lot of ley lines as well which um right. i think we spoke about three men seeking monsters the nick redfern book but there is a, another yeah. story up there about a woman who was walking around arbolo and she saw like a, what looked like a meter long white worm writhing around on the ground in one of the rings Ooh. up there, uh, which the dog, her dog didn't particularly like. And uh, she was very freaked out by it and sort of ran away from it. But that always made me think of the the, the terrible movie by Ken Russell, Lair of the White Worm, yes, which, which is I'm, also I'm based in Derbyshire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, there's the whole story of the white worm, which, yes. you know, he based the medieval romance, which is what he the based Lampton it worm. on. Yeah, the one that, that you cut into pieces and the dog would run away with pieces of it. And was it the... That, that's how he killed it. Basically, he caught a worm, didn't he? And he threw it down a well. And then it emerged from the well and, and took the... And it was the, killing cats and everything, wasn't it? And, and, and terrorising local towns, yeah. And if he, if he chopped a bit off it, it would grow back. Yeah, very. So he got his he got his dog to every time he chopped a bit off, the dog would grab the piece and run off with it, so it wouldn't grow back. And that's how he killed it in the end, I think. Right. Um, But just (laughs) the connection between yeah, with 
with our below in Derbyshire, uh, the lair of the white worm, and then this woman in Three Men Seeking Monsters reported seeing this meter-long white worm writhing on the ground in the centre of a mag- you know in, of a stone circle. Just thought, I, you know, it just really got my imagination going. Was it was it a an interdimensional thing she was seeing, which is quite possible? That would certainly uh, time with your theory that they're there to actually keep things away. How come it got through? Do you know what I mean? That's a bit of... Well, it got through, but it was, it was actually still in the circle. It didn't actually get out of the circle. It appeared inside uh, it, but it didn't actually get out of it. So she could have been there okay. just at the right time when something was coming through. <laughs> she could, couldn't she? Yeah. Oh, dear. So, yeah, there's just that connection with the white worm and the, the stone circle, well, are below, just always made me think yeah. of Ken Russell's terrible film, which I think I watched quite a lot because... Um, <laughs> Kath, who's the girl? There was, there was a, a woman in there who was um, Amanda Donahue. That's it, Amanda Donahue. Yeah, yeah she's in, she's naked quite a lot in it. So I remember watching it as a teenage boy. The Lair of the White Worm and Are Below. Well, one crap film, but one great place to visit if you get the opportunity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I'm definitely going. I think that's great. Um, and like I say, the other great place for me is Avebury. And that really feels special. And being able to stay actually inside, you know, the the um, the circle is incredible. And it, it's one of these places where there's a lot of chalk around there. So you've got, you know, it's just beautiful pasture land. It's just glorious part of the country, really. Um, and um, you're not far then from the White Horse at Huffington. And then uh, away from there, you've got Wayland Smithy. And they're all along the... Um, the old Ridgeway, which is a great walk if you if you ever feel like doing that. It's um I think you can do it. I don't know how many hundred miles it is or if it's a hundred miles. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Put that down to stroke brain, I think. <laughs> but there you go. So um but but, it's, but the circle thing the circle things in general, I think we all think of them as protective, don't we? You yes, know, you'll see course. them as so we've got a, a very very much a shared sense of ownership in this country and, and we feel quite protective towards these stones, which is why it's so annoying when some idiots decide to vandalise them. Um, you know, there, were, there was some somebody coming back from a festival decided to paint runes all over the ones at Avebury, um, destroying sort of ancient lichens and stuff like this. But when you said about toppled stones, um, Stonehenge was absolutely in ruins from the um, drawings and paintings I've seen. Um, there was one by Turner, I believe. He did a picture of Stonehenge, and they're all over the place. And it's sort of been put back together in recent times. So it does make you wonder if they got exactly the right lintel on exactly the right yeah. uprights. Do you know what I mean? And if, exactly. if that was significant, you know, so it's you have to go carefully when you restore these things. Mm, could be like a, um, a circuit that's been re- rewired wrong. It could it could potentially not not be working anymore purely because it's been put back together incorrectly. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? But it's in, it, it's um, the fact that they went so far for the stones because you've got the blue stones from the Priscilla Mountains, and it was only recently that archaeologists have figured out route for the um, uprights because they found uh, some abandoned stones in a wood um, not too far away which I think is really interesting yeah that nobody ever that. put two and two yeah, yeah. And nobody ever figured out actually th- these are stones obviously banned for Stonehenge 
makes you think the stones have a certain property that was required for what they needed it for. Otherwise, any stone would have done, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I suppose we'll never know. We will never know, though. No, no. And also, again, you know about the Druid thing is allegedly bogus, that the people who put them together were possibly beaker people, if not earlier. Um, So it's sort of the Druid thing, again, unfortunately, seems to be a bit of a Victorian construction, which... Let's Another face one. it. <laughs> yeah, a lot Another of that history is. Yeah. Yes. Oh dear, never mind. Um, there's a great stone circle in Shropshire, Mitchell's Fold, which is on a very sort of bleak semi moorland piece, which is, again, it's still got that magic. It's a small, small circle. Um, and it just sticks out of this rabbit crop turf. Um, and I think you'll find it on pretty much. So if you either Google or get yourself an OS map for Shropshire and look up Mitchell's Fold, you'll find it. And it's, I think it's well worth a visit because it's a lovely, lovely circle. Yeah. And there's, there's probably a few that aren't even accounted for on the landscape that have just deteriorated where sites of stone circles once stood, where you know people have probably, go, you know, go back to, say, Victorians who uh, weren't particularly great on conservation maybe even built over the over them in some places well yeah prior prior to that though people used to rub the stones out for their own use yeah so i'm reckoning that probably many uh, a lintel on an old barn if it's got a huge lintel a lot of them do um that it's been rubbed out of a stone circle you know yeah. it's quite possible it just makes you wonder if that gives you know no <laughs> the land a particular or the building rather a particular um quality but um they're also um there's um in his book his book colin wilson wrote this book the occult and he speaks of um ancient farm gates where you you quite often will have a dolmen that that basically becomes a, a gate to a field and his theory is that the field was built around this standing stone and it's just become part of the farm landscape. And it seems to be somewhere where, you know, the gates are made where the cattle already go, go rather than forcing them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, the natural almost, path. Not exactly a migratory route, yeah, but a, a natural path. And cattle do seem very much to take their own own ways. You'll see that on the Welsh hillsides where all, all the sheep go. The tracks they form are really interesting and, and very kind of deliberate then they almost form rings around hills don't they yeah you see yeah, that in, um, i've seen that in derbyshire quite a lot you see rings around hills which are purely sheep routes but you sort of, they'll almost look man-made in a way they look um, yeah mini terraces yeah i know exactly what you mean yeah it's a big feature of the british landscape yeah yeah sheep we don't give them give them too much credit do we but they're <laughs> <laughs> they might be scared. They might be scared of everything, but they uh, create some odd anomalies on the landscape. So I think what we'll do is now. I think we'll wrap up today's show. Um, obviously, you're obviously quite tired, not feeling fantastic, <laughs> and it's far too hot for me. I'm just yeah. It is a bit warm. I'm I'm not feeling too bad, but I do get tired a lot more quickly now. That that's one thing. But I'm hoping that'll go. You know, I'm pretty sure it will, because there's so many places I want to visit now. After today's show, I want to go back to Mitchell's Fold, Castle Rick. And can you mention the one in Derbyshire again, please? Arbolo. 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 Yeah, it's um, A-R-B-O-R. So, harbour without the H. 
yeah. and if you're American, uh, yeah, without without yeah, that the is U. That's American. That's without <laughs> the yeah, U. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arbor, low, Arbor, and Arbor, then low. L, just L O W. No, it's separate. Words? It's two words. It's Arbor, uh, right, low, okay. two separate words. But if you just Google it, you'll see. And um, yeah, it's got. I think most haunted did a. They went up there one of their shows because there's meant to be a bogger okay. up there as well that roams around. Um, they they filmed some anomalous lights floating around up there um, in the dead of night. But obviously it's so high up you can see for absolute miles. So they probably just saw a car going up and down hills from a distance. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a there's the legend of a bogger up there as well. So not only is does does a huge white worm dwell underneath there, there is also a bogger. So what we'll do is we'll hopefully come back. We won't leave the the break as long this time. I'm off to Edinburgh uh, in a few weeks, and I'm going to arrange an interview with Paul MacDonald about his fairy encounters up in the highlands of Scotland. And I've been talking to an interesting author, and I'm going to see if she will agree to do an interview, because if she does, that will be quite a coup. So I'll keep it under my hat. Excellent. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Subscribe via your favourite podcast streaming service and follow us on Facebook and YouTube.